His sacrifice. Good Friday is the moment in our yearly calendar when we ponder the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For some, they shy away from the gruesome details of the event and wish to consider only the glory of a Sunday resurrection. Yet, without Friday, Sunday couldn't come. Both in the Christian calendar as well as in our personal lives, Understanding what took place in that day as well as all the events leading up to it is essential in knowing how our faith was forged in his fire. Mark records that Jesus teaches his disciples of his impending death on at least three different occasions. One is in Mark 8, and there he and his disciples are entering Bethsaida, and they've been accosted by the people with the request to heal a blind man. Patiently and perfectly, Jesus spits on the man's eyes, restoring the man's sight partially, and then touches them with his hands, healing them completely. Through this and other such events, Jesus proves to his disciples that he is the light of the world, as proclaimed in John 8, where he declares that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then as he's taking his disciples through the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? They offer the usual answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. But the, Jesus probes deeper, who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, pipes up first. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, he declares emphatically. Jesus then responds with a proclamation of his death and resurrection, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. <laughs> Peter wasn't happy with this and felt he had to correct Jesus. After all, it wasn't a good idea to have their Messiah suffer and die. What kind of talk was this? And so he took Jesus aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. <laughs> it almost makes you laugh if it wasn't so tragic. The very audacity of Peter to instruct Jesus on what he should do. And Jesus thought so too, for he responded curtly, Get behind me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. He then turns to the crowd to explain further. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He foretells his death and resurrection for a second time after the transfiguration. In this event, Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. This moment proves that Jesus isn't Eliza, Elijah or Moses, as people have thought in Mark 8. And God the Father further reveals, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. Jesus admonishes them to say nothing of this remarkable event until he rises from the dead, affirming once again that one, he will die, and two, he will rise again. He knows Friday's coming. Next, Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy, a healing that the disciples haven't been able to orchestrate on their own until Jesus steps in and casts out the demon. Through this miracle, Jesus proves that he's stronger than Satan and all of his demons and further explains that only close, intimate communication with the Father accomplishes such a miracle.
Then Jesus predicts his death for a second time. Drawing his disciples aside to spend one-on-one time with them, he instructs them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. His words are so clear, but the disciples still didn't get it. What happens next is almost unbelievable. An argument breaks out between the disciples about who's greatest. Jesus has just told them he's going to be betrayed, killed, and then rise again. And the disciples are busy fighting about who's best. Oh, the patience of Jesus. For instead of jumping all over them, instead he draws a little child before them and says, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the Father also. Jesus, in his kind and long-suffering way, shows them that none of them are greatest, but only those who express the humility, trust, and simple faith of a child. He foretells his death a third time as they're on their way to Jerusalem. Listen, he says. You can almost hear the pleading in his voice. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. This is the most explicit account he's given them yet. He dearly wants them to understand what he's going to endure so they won't be frightened when it happens. But he reassures them again with the hope, after three days he will rise again. Sunday's coming. Incredibly, this conversation is followed shortly after with the bold request by James and John. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Isn't it unbelievable that after every time Jesus tells them of his death and resurrection, his disciples try to put their own spin on it? It's no wonder they didn't or couldn't understand what he was telling them about his upcoming sacrifice. Finally, they arrive at the Last Supper. Jesus clarifies again that the Son of Man must die. Yet one of them, his own disciples, would betray him. Still, he takes the bread and the cup and shares this Passover meal with them, establishing both a new covenant and illustrating for them that sacrifice he's about to make. He shows them by breaking the bread, saying it represents his broken body, and taking the cup, telling them it illustrates his spilled blood. On the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus explains again that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered, illustrating his imminent death. To this, the ever-courageous Peter promises that even if everyone else falters, he will remain steadfast. (laughs) But Jesus knows he won't. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Then entering the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus draws Peter, James, and John, the very men who wanted special treatment, a place of preeminence, and tells them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. But their flesh is weak, and they fall asleep, abandoning Jesus when he needed them to be watchful and alert. 
It's then that Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Has this passage ever caught you off guard? Have you ever wondered if Jesus is saying to the Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Let's find another way to save the world. Many commentators have interpreted to mean this, suggesting that this was Jesus' final battle with the flesh, that he, as fully man, wants to preserve his life and avoid the suffering of the cross. But they reassure their readers that Jesus still surrenders his will to the fathers, choosing obedience over selfishness, as he's always said he'll do. These teachers suggest that Jesus said this because he was, after all, human and realizing the horror of the cross, hoped there was another way, yet surrendered his will to the fathers and chose to sacrifice himself. I've never been happy with this interpretation, for Jesus knew why he came and what he would do. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. He didn't at the last minute renege on his intention. Haven't we just read that Jesus repeatedly told his disciples about his betrayal, death, and resurrection in great specific detail? Is Jesus not abundantly sure of what he's come into the world to accomplish, suffer, and die for humanity that may, they may be restored into right relationship with the Father? Has he not always known that he is the sacrificial lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world? then why is it even a possibility that he would doubt his call, his purpose, or his destiny? Another scholar offers an alternative explanation to this passage, saying that Jesus wasn't afraid of suffering and dying. He understood that he was surrendering his heavenly glory to take on earthly form for precisely this purpose purpose. As Paul writes to the Philippians, I, he gave up his divine privileges to take on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. If Jesus knew this was necessary, then why did he say this? The Nelson Bible commentary offers this explanation. In the awful anguish of that moment on the cross, the sin of the world was poured on Christ who became sin for us. Jesus knew that he would be taking upon himself the sins of all humanity, every depraved, wicked, debauched, corrupt thought and deed across all time. As the perfect spotless lamb, he was the perfect sacrifice that could atone for our sin, allowing forgiveness to flow as we read in Romans 8, 5, and God's wrath to be appeased, rescuing us from the coming judgment. We see this specifically expressed when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Covered in the stench of our sin, Jesus was at that moment separated from his father, the intimate contact he'd always enjoyed with him, severed because he was covered in our sin. As Isaiah writes in 59.2, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Thus, in asking for the cup to pass, Jesus was asking that he wouldn't have to suffer such separation from his beloved heavenly father. 
This seems to be a much more satisfying explanation, but there's a third explanation offered by our saved Hebrew brothers. In their deep understanding of the Passover meal, they reveal that there are actually four cups connected to the Passover celebration, and each cup illuminates the four promises that Almighty God makes with his people in Exodus 6. There is the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The cup of deliverance. I will rescue you from their bondage. The cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the cup of praise or acceptance. I will take you as my people. Our brothers teach that in the Passover meal, the cup of suffering is traditionally the third cup, the cup of redemption. Remember at the last supper, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. Here Jesus is drawing on the promise found in Jeremiah 31, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. They will be I will be their God and they will be my people and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. In the Passover meal, participants drink from a communal cup and before it is passed, one is required to drink deeply. Thus, when Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me, he isn't saying, I don't want to drink it, but rather, let this cup pass from me only after I have drank to the last bitter dregs before I pass it on to humanity. He wasn't avoiding the cup, but was asking the Father to let him take on as much of it as he possibly could. Jesus fulfills the words in Isaiah 51. This is what the sovereign Lord, your God and defender says. See, I've taken the terrible cup from your hands. You will drink no more of my fury. As Jeremiah Myers explains, Jesus was not asking that he not drink from the cup of pain and suffering and death, but was praying to end the reign of sin and death once and for all in himself on the cross. He was praying to finish the plan, to bring it to completion. Meyer also offers, argues that when Jesus prayed to let the cup pass, he was using the word abar. He was not praying to escape the pain and suffering and have it pass over, pashak him, but was praying to take it on fully to experience the suffering and death of the cup of God's wrath that redemption may come. How can we know this explanation fits more completely? Scripture assures us that the cross was always the plan of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus even identifies his coming suffering as drinking the bitter cup of suffering. After foretelling his death, Jesus even said, My soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Finally, after his arrest, Jesus stops Peter from killing the temple guard with, Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Thus, Jesus knew with certainty what his death would entail. He taught it, accepted it, understood it, embraced it. For these reasons, we know that Jesus chose the cross for us, chose to suffer and die that we might live forevermore. He willingly laid down his life that we might receive forgiveness. What a great Savior we have. How can we not serve him? 
God bless you, beloved. God bless you.